Welcome to the WSU Wheat Beat Podcast. I'm your host, Drew Lyon, and I want to thank you for joining me as we explore the world of small grains production and research at Washington State University. In each episode, I speak with researchers from WSU and the USDA ARS to provide you with insights into the latest research on wheat and barley production. If you enjoy the WSU Wheat Beat podcast, do us a favor and subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. And leave us a review while you're there so others can find the show too. My guest today is Mike Pumphrey. Dr. Pumphrey is an associate professor in the Orville Vogel Endowed Chair of Spring Wheat Breeding and Genetics at WSU. His breeding program focuses on the development of high-yielding, high-quality, and pest and disease-resistant spring wheat varieties for diverse Washington production environments. Breeding goals in his program also include herbicide-tolerant wheat varieties and varieties with specific value-added end-use characteristics. Mike teaches courses in crop growth and development and advanced principles in plant breeding and genetics. Hello, Mike. Hey, Drew. So, spring wheat breeding program. Spring wheat's a pretty major crop here, but it's a rotation crop with, with winter wheat, which is kind of the king. Growers seem to shift between market classes more in spring wheat than they do with winter wheat. How do you, as a breeder, decide where to focus your breeding program efforts in spring wheat? Uh, you know, over the past... 10 years, I've, I've really kind of subtly adjusted how much effort we put into hard red spring wheat versus soft white spring wheat year in and year out, kind of following market trends. But at some point, I, I basically decided, you know, to take a sort of wholesale inventory of where the, where the germplasm was in each market class and just focus on fixing specific problems and improving, you know, the, the real needs in each market class. What were those from your point of view in, in those two market classes you just mentioned? Um, you know, we, we've got a lot of different systems and options, uh, production regions, disease and pest issues. But, but I basically felt like we didn't have um, complete enough varieties in each class. So we focused on things in, in soft white spring wheats like, you know, maturity, um, aluminum tolerance, uh, you know, stripe rust resistance, um, whereas in hard red spring wheat, we continue to drive, you know, basically yield. And, you know, I, although protein is a major, you know, sort of market trait and characteristic in terms of price levels, really yield is the thing that limits our, our return our, our returns each year. Okay. Seems as it's not just in spring wheat, but uh, in a lot of wheat varieties, there seem to be more and more varieties available each year. And yet the acreage of spring wheat uh, seems to be rather consistent, moves up and down a little bit, but pretty much for the last decade, pretty consistent. Do you think there are too many varieties or are the newly released varieties just performing that much better than, than the old varieties did? Um, I think we did have gaps in each market class and in each type. And I'll give you one example. Like right now we have two uh, spring club wheat varieties, Melba and JD, that are commercially grown. Um, they're really good varieties, broadly adapted, but both of them are susceptible to hessian fly and neither has tolerance to acid soils or, or aluminum toxicity. Um, so there, there are gaps in each of those market classes that really do, um, you know, sort of give credence to a need to release new varieties of each type. Um, that's that's just one example. We had, you know, in the other market classes, I could give similar examples. So okay. in general, um, you know, these new market or these new varieties are not being adopted and multiplied and, and purchased unless they truly are an improvement. And so, 
you know, market forces and, uh, you know, the real value of variety is determining whether or not they go. So, so too many, uh, maybe, but at the same time, um, as long as good ones are, are getting in growers fields, that's our goal. Okay. And you've had some of your newer uh, varieties really, um, take a good share of the market, uh, a good market share here recently. So they must be, uh, performing quite well. Yeah, I, I think so. The, the main driver there is, is things like I mentioned already. I mean, things like aluminum toxicity and Hessian fly resistance and stripe rust resistance and earlier maturity. And, and obviously, you know, what we continue to focus on is improving the, the bar for yield. So we're, we're continually trying to get higher yielding varieties, but I think they're getting more robust. They're getting more sort of complete, huh? um, as we, as we go. Okay, you've had some pretty good uh, recent releases. What do you see as the most promising of your up-and-coming spring wheat varieties uh, in your program? Um, you know, we've like our, our most recent release uh, is a two-gene Clearfield hard red spring wheat called Net CL Plus, and it's actually not in commercial production yet. We've got a, a very large foundation seed increase. Seed dealers around the state have have purchased in advance all of that seed, and so you're going to see it hitting the. Uh, market um the uh, uh you know most recent releases that are in commercial production like ryan uh soft white spring wheat i'm quite excited about um ryan's unusual in that it's it's an early uh maturing line from our program yet it tops the yield trials has an overall complete package and it looks like there might be some value-added market opportunities with ryan in terms of its uh, noodle quality which is something we've never really been able to establish as a as a as an export market here but it looks like ryan might break through that oh, barrier okay. Neat. You you mentioned uh, a Clearfield spring wheat earlier. Um, that's a topic that's dear to my heart because it, it uh, the Clearfield wheat system was developed uh, for wheat control purposes. How do you see Clearfield spring wheat uh, fitting into our crop rotations around here? You know, for the the vast majority of the spring wheat acres, it's really just a I'll call it a two genes for insurance. <laughs> Um, we have enough herbicide carryover in the soil or, or residual activity in the soil of things from um, like pursuit or beyond that in our high rainfall zones all the way to our low rainfall zones, that's a major limitation to crop rotation with spring wheat. And and basically, although you can grow spring wheat following a, a you know, a clear field crop or a, a, a pulse crop that's been treated with pursuit, there is a yield injury. So these are really just removing that sort of barrier to uh, using those particular chemistries. Um, there are cases where people will be applying, you know, beyond to, to spring wheat crops, but in general, it's really just uh, improving yield. Okay. Yeah. It's to allow them to put that into a clear or follow behind a clear field system or, or yeah. pulse. Okay. With, with, with better, uh, better yield results. So before you had this, I think uh, I might've talked to you one time, you could, you could pick out and sometimes in your variety trials or screening trials where the grower had used beyond before, you could, you could see that yield. And, yield you know, year in and year out, I can still see that with specific variety variety testing trial locations where um, all of a sudden those group of clear field entries, whether they're released or, or up and coming lines, uh, group to the very top of yield performance, kind of um, out of out of out of the ordinary. It's it's okay. not something you'd expect, but you can tell that that specific location has a residual problem. Okay, interesting. Um, speaking of uh, weed control and and herbicide resistance, this um, there's been a lot of talk about this coaxium wheat system. Um, a lot of excitement around it because of 
the group twos, the ALS herbicides kind of losing their efficacy on, on particularly downy brome, a lot of excitement. Do you see this uh, system? Uh, so we see that in a lot of winter wheat, a lot of excitement around winter wheat. Do you see a similar interest uh, in the spring wheat uh, area? You know, the, the whole coaxium system and, the, and breeding for that uh, tolerance in spring wheat is, is a different situation than clear field on the whole. Uh, we're not worried about soil residual carryover in the same ways. And fortunately, downy brome is, well, I shouldn't say fortunately. I, I don't, I'm not going to wish it well in any way, but, but uh, you know, spring wheat is used to help manage downy brome right. in the cropping system. Um, really, for the most part, the only problems we have in, with downy brome and spring wheat is where we're doing um, dormant seeded or fall seeded spring wheat, which has gotten really popular in the in the dark northern spring wheat market. So our initial germplasm enhancement efforts and, and variety development efforts in spring wheat are, are bringing that coaxium system into uh, hard red spring wheat that we think can be fall planted. Um, okay. Yeah. So that's where you see bringing this new trade in. You know, and I'm probably overlooking some other fits. There are res- resistant wild oats and other things out there that this might help with in the end. But but really, I, I see broad scale, really, that um, fall seeded or dormant seeded hard red spring wicket as being the primary use for coax. Okay. And, and are you actively integrating that those genes into your into, into Yeah, your, we're, we're about two years in now. We've had that technology licensed um, from the originators at Colorado um, Wheat Foundation and Lima Grain for about two years. And uh, we, we've made several crosses now to integress the two gene tolerance into our spring wheat. Okay. Varieties. So when would you anticipate having the first varieties of that? You know, I, I think everybody always assumes it's faster than it, <laughs> than, uh, than it will be. But, uh, you know, in reality, um, I'll use my first two gene clear field um, spring wheats as an example. Uh, nothing had been done. No crosses had been made when I started in this position nine years ago. And this year we have a two gene clear field hard red spring wheat on large foundation increase. So, that's eight years. Okay. Um, I'm two years into the process. Add six years, you know, you're looking in that timeline. Okay. Very good. What other new traits uh, or characteristics do you think are important in new varieties? And what do you think you'll be working on for the next five or 10 years? Um, you know, you know, a major concern of mine that I've talked about with you on this show and, and as well as, you know, just to growers across the state and in Wheat Life articles is um, Hessian fly resistance. It's something that I, I continue to have increasing concern that we're at, at risk for losing the resistance we're currently using. Okay. So really focusing on bringing in new sources of Hessian fly resistance, getting those into adapted backgrounds, getting those into new varieties is a primary concern. Um, increasingly over the past several years, I've really um, kind of seen the need or value for some of these specific in-use quality traits. And we have several examples here in Washington, whether it's uh, low cadmium wheat varieties, um, uh, resistant starch for, for uh, you know, basically lower glycemic index, um, waxy wheats, partial waxy wheats, um, soft durum wheats. There's, um, you know, I, I think there's increasingly a, a value for those kind of specialty or, or really, um, you know, nutrition or consumer-focused traits. Um, higher micronutrient contents might be another example. Okay. And these are all things you're looking at currently? And, and- yeah. Yeah. We've got um, breeding efforts, um, small to large. We've got graduate students and, and postdocs working on specific projects in okay. each of those areas. And I just, I personally think it's a way to continue to make spring wheat a viable, you know, rotation crop, you know, not over the next five to 10 years, but even 20 to 30 years. 
All right. Well, we'll we'll be interested in having you back on in in some time to hear how some of these uh, efforts you have currently ongoing are coming along. Thanks for your time today, Mike. Yeah, thanks, Drew. Thanks for joining us and listening to the WSU Wheat Beat Podcast. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. If you have questions or topics you'd like to hear on future episodes, please email me at drew.lyon, that's L-Y-O-N, at wsu.edu. You can find us online at smallgrains.wsu.edu and on Facebook and Twitter at WSU Small Grains. The WSU Wheat Beat Podcast is a production of Connors Communications in the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. I'm Drew Lyon. We'll see you next time.